so many female founders, particularly women of color, have a huge initial challenge in getting a business off the ground. And it has to do with economics. 70% of us are breadwinners. We have responsibilities, not just to ourselves, but to our families and to our communities. We need to work. We need to have jobs. And often the time that you spend at a full-time job does not allow you to spend 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week on the sweat equity required to get a startup off of the ground. And then you get penalized for that. Venture capitalists will tell you you're not dedicated or you're not committed because they have no appreciation for the responsibility that we hold in our families and the legacies that we need to create and the shoulders that we are standing on. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 83 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Tiffany Dufu. Tiffany is the author of the book, Drop the Ball, Achieving More by Doing Less. These days, she's best known as the CEO of The Crew, a peer coaching service for women looking to accelerate their professional and personal growth. Tiffany founded The Crew because she realizes that she's the cumulative investment of the people who have mentored her, and she wanted other women to experience the growth that comes along with The Crew. During our conversation, Tiffany shares how she went about getting over 4,000 women on the wait list to find a crew. She shares how she assembled her initial team for free, how the fundraising process is going, and so much more. Before we hear the rest of Tiffany's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes. This will help to spread the word about our podcast so amazing stories like Tiffany's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the founder and CEO of The Crew, Tiffany Dufu. Tiffany Dufu, welcome to She's Off-Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So for any of our listeners who haven't heard of you, could you share who you are and what you do? Well, my name is Tiffany Dufu. My life's work is advancing women and girls. That's what I do. Right now, I feel really lucky that I get to execute that purpose as founder and CEO of The Crew. It's spelled C-R-U. Our algorithm matches circles of 10 women who then collaborate to meet their life goals together. And I'm really excited about it. Why are you so passionate about seeing women succeed? Why is that your life's work? Well, I think all of us have a purpose. Uh, some of us may be more in tune you know, with that purpose than others. I, I believe that purpose can be engineered. I'm, I'm not of the you know, mindset that the skies just open up one day and some voice just tells you, you are here to save the orca whales. <laughs> I think that um, experience, our purpose is just a decision that's inspired by our experiences. So the experience that probably most drives my determination to advance women and girls has to do with my relationship with my mom. Uh, she found out that she was pregnant with me when she was 19 years old. My family um, was from Watts, LA. It was a rough place. It was a rough time when I was conceived. She didn't know anything other than her environment, but she knew that there had to be something beyond that, uh, particularly because she had an uncle who was an army recruiter and she used to see him come and go. So between the big foreboding uncle who was the army recruiter uh, and my mom, uh, my dad joined the military. They got married and I was born at Fort Lewis Army Base in Tacoma, Washington. My mom, when I was growing up, was what I called uh, a non-paid working mom. 
meaning that she, you know, spent a lot of time with the family, but didn't get compensated because I think all moms are, are working moms. And my dad, who had to kick a heroin addiction to even be able to pass a physical exam to get into the military, eventually went to college on the GI Bill. He earned a PhD in theology. I grew up as a preacher's daughter um, in a nice house with a white picket fence around it, not really understanding the miracle of my family having broken a vicious cycle of poverty and addiction and violence in just one generation, Mm -hmm. um, which is really incredible and and part of the reason why I'm a very proud American. Um, But when I was 16, my parents got divorced. And probably my feminist flame started to, uh, you know, get sparked then because one of the observations I made during that experience was that all of the social, economic, political capital that I thought was our families, now I wouldn't have expressed it that way at 16, Mm. I learned actually only belonged to our dad because he was the one who had a college education. He was the one who did work outside the home. He was the one who was the beacon in the community. Mm. He was the one who had won all of the awards. And unfortunately, my mom spun back into that very vicious cycle of poverty and addiction and violence at the hands of her second husband. So I spent my early 20s trying to save my mom before I had to learn uh, what I call a Tiffany's epiphany, um, which is that each one of us is actually the most powerful change agent in our own journey. You actually can't save Mm -hmm, another person. mm -hmm. Um, But one of the beautiful things about the intervention that my mom did for me was she used to tell me every day, as if she had was telling me for the very first time, Tiffany, you're so smart. Mm-hmm. You are so loved. You're so beautiful. My mother told me that every day. Um, she didn't, unfortunately, have a mother like, like I did. And so, you know, I wake up every morning and I'm probably just trying to get to every woman I can and to whisper in her ear, you're so smart and you're so beautiful and you're so loved. And I hope that this podcast episode can be another one of those whispers to whoever's listening. I love that. And when I think about things, my mom whispered to me, it wasn't quite a whisper, but one of the things she always said was make sure that you're established as a woman before you get married. It was just one of those things where she said, get your education, make sure that you're financially able to stand on your own two feet. And when I read in your book that without your father, your mom spiraled into poverty, I thought, yeah, there is some truth to what my mom was saying. So speaking about your book, if if anyone hasn't read it or come across it, Tiffany did write a book called Drop the Ball. And when I first read the book, I know you had shared that having children was a big catalyst for you learning how to drop the ball. Can I ask, why did you decide to have children? I think that's an interesting question because I'm a Gen Xer who always thought that having children was inevitable. Mm. So I think the only thing unique was I did, I got married young, very young. And uh, when my husband, you know, asked me to marry him, I did go to my sages. I said, yeah, it's a great idea, but I need to get some advice. He was like, I know, I know. Cause I, I always circle the wagons on big decisions. And I went to several women to ask them what they thought of us getting married. And they all said basically something similar, which is you guys are amazing. I think that you should get married. I think you guys would create, you know, change in the world together, but wait to have children. 
wait to have children. Um, and at the time it didn't make that much sense because all of these women had gotten married and had children and everyone mm-hmm. in my community did that. Um, but I did, I went back to him and I said, I will marry you, but I will decide when we have children and, and, and you'll, we will be waiting. And we waited eight years, mm-hmm. um, to do it in part. And, you know, by that time, I just felt like, well, it's probably time now. Um, but I think it's fascinating because I do have a lot, I have a, several mentees and I do find that my millennial sisters, that it's a much more of a conscious decision, you know, whether or not they will have them. Whereas mm-hmm. for me, that's what people do. You, you, you know, replenish the population right, um, right. with, you know, with yourself. And certainly if I had done too much analysis, I wouldn't have them because I live in Harlem, New York, and it's very expensive to have children. So I'm happy that I didn't think too hard about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're a blessing. Same for me. I can't imagine life without my kids now. But I think in hindsight, if you have too much information, you may not make the same decisions. Yes. But also in reading your book, one of my biggest takeaways was Mel. So for any of the listeners who haven't heard about Mel, Mel, could you share how you were able to get to the point where you decided you needed Mel? Yes. So I should back up and share for anyone who's listened, you know, who isn't familiar with the book. Um, the title is Drop the Ball, Achieving More by Doing Less. It's uh, basically a memoir about how I got my husband off the couch, <laughs> um, you know, and, and how he was really never there to begin with. So it's, it's a book for really busy women who have high expectations of themselves and want to figure out, you know, how to let go. And, you know, I put forth this framework in the book of really getting clear about what matters most to you, figuring out what your highest and best use is, and then figuring out how to engage other people in your life in order for you to be successful. And is a reference to a tactic that I use. It's just short for management Excel list. Um, in the journey, my drop the ball journey, and by the way, I wrote a book called Drop the Ball because I used to be a person who was terrified of ever dropping a ball. Um, and so I've basically reappropriated the term. Um, but one of the things that I was having a difficult time doing was really um, inspiring maybe, you know, my husband to do more around the house. And I noticed that at work, I was a very different kind of leader than I was in my own home. You know, at work, if we had a project that we were launching, I would get everybody on a brainstorm to determine what we needed to do in order to be successful. Um, we may divide responsibilities based on our roles, but I wasn't that way in, in my house. I basically felt like everything should be done the way I wanted it to be done. <laughs> and then I would get resentful when things didn't happen the way I wanted them mm-hmm. to happen. And so I just decided to use a document, like to literally use an Excel list to divide responsibilities and to do it together. So my mail includes basically the list of everything that's required in order for our home to function smoothly, along with columns for each person in our home. And we um, really reflect on our mail probably once every six months, although in the midst of um, you know, our current uh, crisis that we're facing, um, we've been, you know, addressing it like once every four weeks, it feels like to figure out who should be doing what. But the most important column in the mail is what we call the no one column. So what's really important is that you kind of mutually agree as a family uh, that there are some things that just aren't going to get done. 
so that you cannot be upset with the other people when they don't get done. Mm-hmm. And you can just say, you know, that's just Mel's fault that, <laughs> you know, that didn't get done. So um, now, because all of us are working really hard, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's, you know, working on our projects, our, our businesses, our companies, there's a lot more in the no one column. Mm, I love that. And that partnership with your husband has really helped you attain some great heights in your career that many of us hope to attain one day. But in 2013, I know you had to shutter the White House Project, an organization you led and were part of for many years. So what lessons did that milestone in your career teach you? Oh, so many. I wish I could go through all of them. I think um, one even though an organization might shudder, even though a company might shudder, even though a project might shudder, your purpose and your passion cannot be shuttered. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you know what you're on the planet for, then you can recover. And it can manifest in multiple ways. And it might be time for the baton to be passed to another mechanism Mm -hmm. for you to execute that purpose. That's one. The second thing that I learned was actually at the hands of a woman named Stephanie Rules. She's actually an MSNBC correspondent, you know, news anchor right now. But at that time she was at Bloomberg. I had known her because she was a banker before that and, and was a big supporter of the White House project. And when I called her, to tell her that I was closing the organization. I called every donor, everyone who had contributed to that organization. I personally called to let them know that we were closing our doors. She said, why do you sound so sad? And I said, this is terrible, Stephanie. Like this organization is closing under my watch. Um, You know, it was my responsibility. Um, The work is in jeopardy. And she said, I think this is going to be great for you. And I said, how could you possibly say that? And she said a number of things. But one of the first things that she said was, Tiffany, you're about to find out who your real friends are. Mm, We all need a friend like that. Wow. Yeah. She said, um, usually we, many of us have had to wait, excuse me, further in our careers down the line in order to figure that out. She says, this is your first real like national leadership gig. You're like, y'all, you're a baby. And you're about to find this out right now. And it's going to inform your decision-making and how you curate your network Mm -hmm. and your tribe, you know, moving forward. So I I look forward to that. The other thing that she said was that I had had a story, you know, journey. She says, Tiffany, name one thing that you ever like poured your heart into trying to achieve that you didn't achieve. And I was really quiet. And she said, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. She said, this public failure will be your street cred. And trust me, in order to be wise, in order to be credible, Mm -hmm. everybody needs, everybody needs some street cred. And you don't really have any. You need some battle scars. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. So now at that point, you transitioned and did something a little bit different. Whereas in the past, you had been maybe with more established organizations you joined a startup. I did. And I know you had said something that you loved about the startup culture was it helped you create more of a portfolio career, which is something that millennials these days love. They want to be able to develop side passions. So could you talk to us about that transition and really what you did learn from it? 
Yes. So I owe a lot of where I am right now in my leadership journey to millennials because I went to work for this company that was founded by millennials, that was run by millennials. And I have to give a shout out to Caroline Gohn and Amanda Pouchot, who were the co-founders of Levo. Basically, before I went to work for this tech startup, I had a very, what now I feel like is a dinosaur model of what a career is. <laughs> Basically, you take all of your gifts, talents, skills, and abilities, you invest them, 24-7, blood, sweat, and tears into one brand. You can call the brand a company, you can call it a firm, but basically one brand. You negotiate a salary and a title. You achieve a certain set of deliverables, and then you renegotiate a new title and a new salary. And you keep doing that and moving up. Maybe at some point you might move to a different brand, but you just continue on that trajectory until one day you do this thing called retiring. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought a career was. I went to Lavo and no one was, no one understood that dinosaur model. At Lavo, <laughs> you apply your gifts, talents, skills, abilities in whatever way is going to definitely achieve the bottom line for the company, but also in a way that's going to secure your own financial freedom, mm -hmm. which meant that they were supportive of side hustles in whatever way is going to help you to create impact in the world might really make a difference. They cared about that and you feeling that you were making a difference and also in whatever way that's going to amplify your brand because they saw the amplification of the brand of employees just having a blowback effect on them. A positive um, one. Is, wow. Yes. That, is, yes. that just sounds like the ideal place to work for yes. today's generation. That's it. That's it. Um, so... You know, that's where I really learned. So I created a, I had a public speaking practice that I launched out of Lavo in part because it was a, it was a startup. So they didn't have a lot of money to pay me. So I thought, okay, it's no big deal. You know, I'll do some public speaking to help supplement right. what they can't pay me. Well, within a year and a half, that public speaking practice, I was making more money than I was at my job. Oh. Um, and that, and that, you know, that led to the book. So it's, I, I give them a ton of credit for really teaching me that if you have something, if you have a talent, a skill that you can interface directly with the market on and take out the middleman, mm -hmm. it's doable it's feasible. And for me, that was very hard because I was socially conditioned to really believe in a paycheck, a regular direct deposit into my bank account mm -hmm. as security, mm -hmm. as security. That's what my elders taught me. And that's what I felt was not now. That's, that's crazy to me. Now the portfolio allows you to be able to write a book again, if you need to write a book and get another advance, it allows you to be able to increase your public speaking. Although now that we're in the midst of this crisis, there aren't a lot of events, but I'm still, still doing, still yeah, do it. Yeah, I'm still doing, doing virtual events to have that as, you know, the ability to allow you the sweat equity to build a company like the crew. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if, if the crew doesn't work, which, um, it's working so far, I still, I'm a public speaker. I still have a book. You know, if no one ever wants to hear me speak ever again, mm -hmm. I can write another, I can write another book. I can launch another company. It's just, you, you just have this flexibility. Right. So now you have that big growth mindset around what is possible with your career. And that is a shift I love to hear or see women making. So at this point, you are in the throes of raising capital for the crew, but how did you get the idea to launch the crew? Because in looking at the mission, it is your mission in life or one of them 
personified through a tech platform. So how did you come up with the idea? Yes. So I care deeply about advancing and supporting women. I've done lots of things in my career to try to do that, but I'd say the most important that has impacted the crew and pretty much everything else that I do, including the book has been just saying yes to women. I don't have to know you personally Mm -hmm. for you to reach out to me and for me to say, yes, I'll I'll be on your podcast or I'll connect with you. Um, And I used to host starting in 2012 was when I started getting more requests to just connect, you know, the, can I, you know, I just need some advice. I'd like to pick your brain. And I did something very counter to my drop the ball philosophy in 2012, which is to say yes to everybody. So I would start meeting women on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9, 10, 11 AM. And it's actually only been recently that I've stopped doing it because our COO with the crew is like, you can't, you can't do this. Like we need this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've made lots of observations in listening to over a thousand women's stories during that time. One of them is that even though we often have a lot of people around us, our family, our friends, our coworkers, women psychologically, we largely perceive our leadership journey or our personal or professional journey as a solo endeavor, Mm. not a team sport. Even though we have a lot of people around us, meaning that if we have a question, we have a problem, you know, the first thing that we're asking ourselves is how am I going to solve this problem? When the much more important question for you to start with is who's going to help me solve this problem? Mm-hmm. You can't even solve it. You can't, as far as I'm concerned, you can't even solve the problem without other people. So I have been evangelizing this idea of the crew in my pep talks at the end of every conversation with a woman, because I'm the cumulative investment of a lot of people who have poured themselves into me. And I have a crew. I have a a group of women who are my peer mentors who basically hold my feet to the fire around my ambition and hold me accountable and make sure that, you know, I have a plan and then that I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. And for... I don't know, two years, most women would be like, that's a great idea. I need to find my crew. And she would get up and leave. But January, 2018, I was at the wing. I'm a member of the wing and I was there. It was a Tuesday session at 10 AM. I was giving my crew pep talk. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone where you could see that they were not feeling you. Mm-hmm. This, this, this <laughs> sister was not feeling me. Okay. And I was like, wow. So I had, it was so bad. I had to stop and say, is everything okay? And bless her heart. I will be so forever indebted to her. She was so honest and said, no, Mm. she said, it isn't, it is not okay. She said, Tiffany, I understand theoretically this idea of a crew. I'm very happy for you that you have one. I believe that if I had what you have, I could move my life forward faster, but I don't believe you have any appreciation for what is required in order to have that kind of group. She said, by the time I get access to some conference or event or cocktail party, awkwardly introduce myself to a bunch of strangers, take the business cards that are going to sit in the bottom of my bag or my desk drawer, pull them out, schedule a bunch of coffees, teas, and lunches. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, I had to take time off of my job to meet you here at the wing at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Then you want me to spend all of this time meeting with these people, find out who I'm compatible with, who can really support me. Then you want me to curate 
10 or 12 of them to host quarterly gatherings and organize us putting forth our goals together. Tiffany, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted listening to that. That's what she said. I'm exhausted just thinking about all the work that would be required. Mm -hmm. She said, I have a full-time job. I have three kids. I have a mom with a diagnosis. I have a dog. I have a commute. I came to you because you wrote a book called Drop the Ball and I'm overwhelmed and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to move forward. And I just feel like you're giving me more to do. And, and I can't, I can't do anymore. So no, this is not helpful for me. If this is all you have for me, I don't even know what to say. And that was what I call a Tiffany's epiphany moment. Um, where I really had to look inside myself and say, you know, my goodness, if your life's work is advancing women and girls, you should probably stop preaching to women at this point about how they need to find a crew. And you need to just find the damn crew. Mm -hmm. You find the damn crew, Tiffany, because she's right. You're the one sitting up here at the wing all day, Monday, 9, 10, 11 a.m., meeting with all these fabulous women. So you do something about it. That is how I had a splash page up. I created a video in four weeks. I created a video of me sitting on my couch that basically said, hi, I'm Tiffany Dufu. I'm, I've done a lot of great stuff. I'm smart and I work hard, but the secret to my success is my crew. If you need a crew, just click here and apply and I will, I will find one for you. And hundreds of women started applying. Mm. That is how, that is how we launched the crew because I had had my Lavo experience. Yeah. Remember I'd spent four years mm-hmm. at a technology you startup. You understood how startups are doing I understood, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also understood, I had some Lavo lessons because Lavo also didn't work ultimately. Lavo eventually shuttered as well. So I had my Lavo lessons and one of them was about monetizing a community from the very beginning. Basically, don't start a company unless you know how you're going to make money. Mm-hmm. So I already knew that I would need to charge a membership fee. That this would be a subscription model. That there would be a membership fee to join the crew. I knew that for certain. Mm-hmm. I also am not a young whippersnapper founder. Uh, so, and I, I have. I feel like I'm a grown up founder. I have a mortgage. I have kids. So I really needed to de-risk this business mm-hmm. by ensuring that it was actually solving a problem. So to me, the membership model and putting that out there from the beginning right away um, would tell me whether or not women would line up around the block mm-hmm. to get matched with the crew. And um, you know, she'll, she'll pay, yeah, she'll pay that four ninety nine. And by the way, you pay that before you meet the members of your crew, mm-hmm. before you even know who the crew is. You know, so as soon as I put that out there, I did the first round of matching. I sent people an invitation to join, and they were giving me four hundred and ninety nine dollars and. They, they hadn't even laid eyes on their crew. I thought, okay, we're on to something. Like these women need a crew. So <laughs> because- why do you think they were so willing to put it out there? Was it that what you said directly matched to an issue that they were facing? Or do you think perhaps your brand had something to do with that? Both. I think you have to have both. Mm. So the first part though, is even without the the brand, and we should talk about brand and what that means, because sometimes people don't understand what a brand actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing is you do need to be solving a problem, a pain point, a strong brand without solving a problem, which is another one of my Lego lessons. Like don't start with the product, start with the problem mm-hmm. and then, and then engineer a solution that's really going to resonate with people. But she gave me so much in that feedback that she gave to me about the crew. I realized, oh, the pain point is all that work. Mm-hmm. 
it goes into. It's not as if you don't want a crew. It's not as if you don't agree that you want this like quote unquote tribe of amazing women. It's just that she was right. That is a lot of, of work. And if we could take the work out of the networking, that in and of itself was a strong enough value proposition. It was a, it was a strong enough solution to the problem mm-hmm. that women would be, that they were willing to pay. The other piece is the brand, right? Is that you, you need to be someone, especially in the beginning, or you need to push out a brand that people trust. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was important, not just for collecting revenue, right? But I also know it was important because the center, the organizing principle of the crew are what we call intentions or goals. So I was very hell bent on, this is not going to be some willy nilly wine and cheese women thing. Okay. We are here to take care. If you'll be in the crew, you'll be here to take care of some business. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to articulate what your business is over the next 12 months, whether you need to get a promotion, start your company, lose five pounds, or get more Instagram followers. You're going to upload those intentions into a portal along with actions against them. And your crew's primary responsibility is to hold you accountable mm-hmm. through you know frequent gatherings and digitally. And I knew that in order for a woman to upload into a, a tech platform what she truly wants to achieve in her life. And in some ways, it might be things that she hasn't shared with her friends. It may be things that she hasn't shared. This is her deepest, darkest, what she wants to achieve. We better have a brand she can trust. Right. We better have a brand that she can trust. So I did, unlike some of the founders, it sounds like you have, I did leverage myself because I know why I'm here. And I knew that she would trust me. If she, if I could articulate to her why I'm on the planet and what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. And I think you also have a long track record of focusing on this issue. And so this platform just seems like a very natural extension of what you've already been doing. And so in the age of the internet, people probably are going to do their research and that history helps to also build on your credibility. What kind of a crew did you put together to make sure that you would be able to pull together the logistics that are required to? have a platform like this? I'm so happy you asked this question because so many female founders, particularly women of color, have a huge initial challenge in getting a business off the ground. Mm. And it has to do with economics, okay? Most women of color, and if we're specifically talking about Black women, 70% of us are primary breadwinners, mm-hmm. okay? We have responsibilities, not just to ourselves, but to our families and to our communities. And they are mostly, they are economic responsibilities. Mm -hmm. In order to fulfill our economic responsibilities, we need to work. We need to have jobs. And often the time that you spend at a full-time job to fulfill your breadwinning responsibilities does not allow you to spend 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week on the sweat equity required to get a startup off of the ground. Exactly. As far as I'm concerned, this is like the crux of the issue. And then you get penalized for that. Venture capitalists will tell you you're not dedicated or you're mm-hmm. not committed. Why are you holding on to that business or exactly. your day job? Why are you holding mm-hmm. on to the day job? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they have no appreciation for the responsibility that we hold in our families and the legacies that we need to create and the shoulders that we are standing on in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Or the amount of time we spend protecting black male bodies, which is a whole other thing that we're mm-hmm. dealing with right now, which mm-hmm. is like, that oh, girl, that's a whole other podcast episode. Yep. So, you know, I say all of that to say, I have a crew, remember? Mm -hmm. 
And when I got that Tiffany's Epiphanies in January of 2018, I knew what I needed to do. But my stumbling block was I don't have the money to hire a team to launch a company. Mm -hmm. And I was sharing this with one of my crew members who was responsible for holding me accountable for my ambition. And she called me on it. She was like, that's BS. She said, you're about to launch a company called the crew. She said, there is no reason why a woman of your stature and your ilk cannot find people who are invested in you and care about you and love you enough that you cannot figure out a way to get this company off of the ground with them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but I don't have any money to pay them. She was like, you don't have to pay any of them. People will do this for you. Just ask. And sometimes we think I have to do it by myself, but just ask. Mm -hmm. So I, one Saturday I told my family, I said, I need to go, you know, to the office. Can you guys just take care of things? They're like, great. One Saturday I went to the office and I basically wrote, it was like a project management sheet of everything that would need to be required in order to get the crew off of the ground, just to get it launched. Mm -hmm. I need a logo. I need like a brand identity. I'm going to need somebody with some survey monkey information. I'm going to need like an organizational psychologist or like someone who can help me determine what questions should I ask these women in order to be able to effectively match them? Is there a personality assessment that we can white label? Because I don't, you know, there was like all of these, all of these things that I felt. And then I wrote down in one column, the names of everyone that I knew that I felt were incredible and could do this. And I did it irregardless of what they were currently doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I didn't let myself say, well, she's got like a big job at this, you know, big company. So she would never know. I just, who do you know that could slay at this part? Mm -hmm. And then I basically created a timeline and put a deadline for each one of the items. So, you know, basically you would need to have someone create a logo for you by this. You would need to have someone do. Mm -hmm. And the only person, the only one that I didn't know, I didn't have someone in my network was the designer was a designer. I thought, I don't really have someone at my fingertips who is an incredible designer, but I'll ask some people who I know value design if they know Mm -hmm. someone. That was kind of like my outlier. And that eventually ended up being the only thing I did pay for. Um, I ended up engaging a woman named Maya Dancheva, who is still with me now and makes every, everything that you see at the crew.com is Maya Dancheva. She's amazing. Outside of that, everybody else volunteered. I basically sent the spreadsheet with a note that said, I'm trying to launch this venture. I know it sounds crazy, but can you look at this spreadsheet, find, see where your name is and tell me, can you do that thing by this date? Wow. Because if you can, I could get this off of the ground. Everybody said, yes, of course, everybody said yes. Now in hindsight, I feel silly that I didn't think everybody would say, would say yes. And that is how we got it off of the ground. Once I had the whole matching process was a notebook. This is a podcast. I won't show you the notebook, but basically we printed profiles. Um, I engaged my crew members, helped me match the first round. It took, you know, three or four of us in a room kind of yelling at each other. And then once, and then I set up Stripe. And then once I collected the $499 from which was, which gave me $50,000 for that first cohort, Mm -hmm. then I got the engineer to build the platform. Wow. Now I know I've talked to founders who've had difficulty with the first iteration of sites when they're working with, you know, software engineers. What was your experience like finding someone that you trusted to build the site? Was that part of the list that you already had? 
I basically reached out. So this was kind of the benefit of having been at Levo and having gotten yeah. in, the, in the startup world was I knew I didn't know anyone, but I had a profile. And I think this is so important when you need access to someone you have to create a profile and you have to be very clear in communicating to people in your network what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so I created my profile. Listen, I'm looking for an engineer. It could be a male or a female, someone who really believes in what we're doing. So effectively a feminist, you know, whether it's a man, you know, male or female or anything in between, I need someone who has, you know, a certain level of engineering experience, who has some time on their hands, Mm -hmm. who, I mean, I just kind of had my profile. And then I would just ask everybody, you know, that I knew who might have access to technologists. Do you know this person? And two people in my network said, Oh yeah, I know who you're looking for. His name is Porter Bain, but he lives in North Carolina. So figure, figure that one out. And, um, it turns out Porter Bain had fallen in love and he and his wife were in North Carolina. And as long as I never made it, make it move from North Carolina, he was happy to do to join in and and do this. So that's how I found him. At least until this point, it looks like every step of the process just, it just feels so preordained and has the pieces are falling into place. What challenges have you faced so far? Well, there were challenges all along the way. Um, Some of them, one, I didn't actually anticipate the high response rate. So I was not prepared. So, So I had offered a 20 minute Zoom interview to every woman who applied to the crew, <laughs> not realizing that was going to result in hundreds of 20 minute virtual interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, you know, in the beginning, a lot of it was logistics of, Oh my gosh, how are we going to actually do this? Given that I don't have a platform. Cause remember I didn't, I couldn't afford to build anything right. before, you know, the one launch. I think probably the biggest challenge was by the time we onboarded the first cohort, the first class in September, you know, October of 2018, probably by January, more women, I didn't know how to turn off like the application. So women kept applying to the crew. I've now got a waiting list of women who want a crew. I don't have any more capital because remember I, I, you know, you get the, the fee up front. Mm-hmm. So I'm executing on servicing these women who paid in advance. I don't have, you know, more money. Um, so I took a little bit of my savings to keep it going, but it became very clear. I would need to raise capital mm-hmm. and raising venture capital is really hard to do. Please speak to it because <laughs> it we constantly are hearing about the 0.002% of Black women that actually get VC funding. So yes. given that you do have a background in nonprofit fundraising, how do you yes. think that better positioned you to raise VC capital? Oh, well, it better positioned me and that I thought I could do it. I didn't think it was going to be difficult. Mm. When you go into something thinking you know how to do it, you're, you have, there's a certain level of, you know, chutzpah, so to speak, that you bring to the situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, but boy, did I learn quickly that raising a nonprofit dollars is very different from raising <laughs> venture capital. So I would say there are a number of things that, that were in my favor. Um, one is that remember I'm the cumulative investment of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I run into a roadblock, my first question isn't how am I going to solve this? My first question is who's going to help me do it. Mm-hmm. And within, I would say about three weeks of moving into trying to raise venture capital, it became very clear. I needed a sponsor, someone who would make introductions and also demystify the process for me. Mm-hmm. It was obvious to me. It needed to be a guy who was white 
who had spent time in Silicon Valley, either as an operator. I mean, I had a list of who it was. He either needed to have spent some time in the Peace Corps in some, you know, underdeveloped country, or maybe if he was Jewish, you know, there needed, like I had like a list of what I thought was going to work. And I started doing the same thing I did, you know, when I needed a CTO, which was just start telling people, this is what I'm looking for. And eventually I had a woman say, oh, I know, I know somebody who's like that. Um, And he just left Lyft. Um, It's about to IPO. He's probably got some time on his hands because that was one of the things that has some time on his hands because mm-hmm. he's gonna this person's gonna be taking me on. Mm-hmm. And he turned out to be incredible. He's now an advisor to the crew. Um, but he did a couple of things that are really important that you know, if I had more bandwidth, I did write a piece about how to raise your first million that outlined some of this, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you can share with listeners. But he did a couple of things that were very important. One is he broke down the politics of venture capital for me. After the meetings, I would call him and he would say, what did they ask you? And I would say, this is what they asked me. He would say, what did you say? And what questions did you ask? And then based on my responses, he would basically tell me yes whether or, no. or not. Yeah. Like, like what their response is likely mm. to be. Um, so he taught me about kind of the mindset and the decision-making, um, that was really important. Um, so I had that definitely going for me, which was a a sponsor. The other thing that I had was I had early, very, very early in my career, one of my first jobs was as a telemarketer. Mm. Um, it's, it was the worst job that I ever had, but it's actually one of the most important jobs that I've ever had because I built up a lot of rejection resiliency Mm. and, um, fundraising is a numbers game. So I had, you know, 84, 85 prospects for that first round to get to 12 investors, which basically means the the majority of the experience, just like it is now, I'm raising another round, is rejection. Mm -hmm. So unless maybe you came from a career, maybe in entertainment where you did lots of auditions and you were getting, it's most people you know, haven't had an experience in which you're just constantly getting rejected. And there's a lot of psychological, I would, I would use the word trauma like associated with day in and day out Mm -hmm. trying to run a company and then also getting a lot of rejection. Mm -hmm. Um, so those were, those are just a few things that I'll mention, but there were great resources. All raise was an amazing resource. If you haven't heard of all raise and you're a female founder, mm-hmm. they have a boot camp, um, a fundraising boot camp that I went through. That was great. And they also have a mentorship program and they even have a pipeline program. So once you, you know, go through their boot camp, once you have a mentor, you can apply for their deal flow program where they'll send your pitch deck out to the VC community, women who are also members of all raise and I've gotten meetings through that. So they're a great community. The other um, resource is another podcast called The Pitch. Uh, yeah. um, it's a Gimlet podcast. Um, funny enough, I ended up being a, a guest on the podcast yeah. um, and the crew actually has an episode on the podcast. I binge listened to that podcast because it does something that unless you're in the VC world or you know, you've done that before, it puts you in the room. Mm-hmm you know, where it happens, so to speak. And you can really listen because it's real founders pitching to real venture capitalists. That was really, um, you know, an important resource for me. Um, there's also a book called burn the business plan. 
Mm. Uh, that was helpful. And there's also a book called Venture Deals. It's by Brad Felt, but it's a bit of like a crash course in raising venture capital. So there are lots of you know resources out there. Those are just a few that were really helpful to me. So Tiffany, I know a lot of our listeners at one point are thinking about launching their own business and hearing your story, everything that you've been able to build so far to this point, it's very inspirational. What advice would you have for anyone who's looking to follow in your footsteps? Well, I would start with what my parents taught me, you know, and taking the risks, you know, and moving to a different area and really, you know, creating a different upbringing for us and the experience, which is that if you want something you've never had before, you're going to have to do something you've never done before in order to get it. So what are you doing today? What are you, you know, doing tomorrow? that you have never done before in order for you to manifest a different reality for yourself. That's so important. We will never be able to, every day I do something different, you know, and that, that's how you keep evolving and that's how you keep pushing yourself. I think the other piece is to really ensure that you can maintain a balance of conviction for your product or for your service and and you being rooted in what you know to be true. I know my consumer. I've listened to her, Mm. thousands of her and and her story. I understand the mindsets and the skills and the behaviors that she needs in order for her to be effective and successful in moving her life forward. And I'm using that insight in order to curate an amazing experience for her. So there are some things that I know to be true. I'm very passionate about and no founder, no VC could tell me, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you have to know what that is, but you also have to know where you need to grow and where you need feedback that you need to hear, not just the feedback that you want to hear and, and how to be receptive, you know, in the fundraising process, especially so that you can get the insight from others. So I think, you know, really being always open-minded to new opportunities and to learning and to growth Mm -hmm. and to simultaneously be very rooted in what you know to be true. Oh, I love that advice. And so Tiffany, for anyone who's now intrigued and wants a crew, how can they find you? Yes. Thank you for asking. You should definitely go to thecrew.com and it's C-R-U.com and apply. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me at Tiffany at thecrew.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Tiffany. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. See you on the next one.